and grace. My name is Ben. I'm one of the elders here. It's an honor to be with you this morning. Um, how many people were at the uh, ministry team meeting on Monday? How many people there? A fair number of you. Good. We had a good time, didn't we? Yeah? Some, some of us did. A few of us did. The rest of us, I don't know. But um, if you were unable to make the ministry team meeting, we want you to know that there is still a way to get the information we communicated to you. We put together this packet of information, which contains everything that we went over at the ministry team meeting. These are available at the Welcome Center today and uh, probably for the next few weeks as well. So you can pick up and uh, catch up on what you missed. <clears throat> uh, it goes through some uh, financial updates for Grace. It goes through what it means to belong to the family of Grace. And it also goes through um, who uh, the governing elders are of Grace Fellowship Church and what that means, what eldership means at Grace Fellowship Church. Grace is a elder-led church. And so, so we have a team of elders right now that are, are three elders Myself, Alan Urban, and Jeff Smith, who uh, are, govern Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. We're going through a season right now, starting right now, where we are on the hunt for new elders. Um, new elders to join the team that's already in place of governing elders. So in this search process, and another thing that's available at the Welcome Center is this. It's an elder recommendation form. It has the qualifications, biblical qualifications for eldership on the back, um, and a ex short explanation of each of those. And uh, it's a chance for you as the body to join us in the first step of discernment um, on how the Lord would move in adding men to the team of elders of Grace Fellowship Church. So we invite you, starting today, to uh, pray with us, to pray over those who might be recommended as elders in this time, to, after you have prayed, go ahead and if, if there are men you know who, would, um, who you would like to recommend as elders, you can fill that out on behalf of uh, of them and recommend them, and then they'll enter into an application process. And you can f find out more about that elder process, again, in the ministry team book. So that's all available at the Welcome Center. Well, I am here uh, with you today to start a new series. Uh, how many were with us last week for prayer and worship morning? It was a beautiful time. Uh, here's what I want you to know, even though I'm starting a new series, it doesn't mean we're not leaving worship behind, right? So, so last year we did a, a series of prayer, a series on prayer in the fall. And prayer, we established prayer altars. We talked about establishing our hearts and home as prayer altars before the Lord. That's not the place we've ever left since, even though that series ended, right? That's a place we continue on. And so if you are not yet uh, committed to being a prayer altar before God you're in your heart and in your home, it's available out there right now. You can add your pin to the map. Um, likewise, this series in worship where we have learned, where God has grown us in uh, passionately responding to the reality of who he is and the reality of who we are in him. That's not something we're leaving because uh, Jesus, we believe, is, is growing us up into a new season of worship and that season just keeps going. So uh, I, I want you to we're, know today that we're still discerning what that means on the Sunday expression. Here's one thing that I know that it means, that it means we want a closer connection between worship and word in the Sunday expression. So here's, here's what I'll say this morning. Uh, our worship is, hasn't ended just because they left the stage, right? They let us beautifully, but our worship hasn't ended just because we're not singing. Our worship continues as we open God's word because this is the first place in the primary place where we learn who God is and who we are in him 
And as we passionately respond to that, one of our responses is to open it up and find out more. So we're going to continue our worship this morning together. And the series we're uh, starting is called Sacred. Life, Sex, and Gender Through God's Eyes. Should be a very comfortable series to walk through, right? <laughs> Everybody's excited, huh? God has stuff for us in that ser this series. Even in the difficult conversations, God has more for us, right? So that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. So I'm going to um, be talking about sacredness and about life, the sacredness of life this morning. I want to give you a heads up, though, that the next couple of weeks, Jeff will be back with us, and he'll be touching on the subjects of sex and gender. So there'll be a little bit more sensitive of a week. So if you bring your child into service, next week might be a week where you might want to sit out in the cafe or might want to have them join Grace Kids for a couple weeks. We're not going to get graphic, but we are going to get real because God has things to speak to these issues and our culture vastly misunderstands them. And folks, whether we know it or not, we are products of our culture. And there are lies that our culture believes about things like life and sex and gender, and some of them creep into our thinking too, and into our hearts and into our minds. And so this in, in this series, we're going to be asking God to restore us to his truth in these things. So sacred, what is sacred? Nobody likes that word nowadays. Sacred is not a popular word in our culture. Uh, John Kelly White House Chief of Staff, he was said in a press conference about a year ago now, he said this. When I was a kid growing up, he said, a, a lot of things were sacred in our country. Women were sacred, looked upon with great honor. That's obviously not the case anymore, as we see from recent cases. Life, the dignity of life was sacred. That's gone. Religion, that seems to be gone as well. And John Kelly said these things, and the press lit him up. In a bad way. Completely disagreed with him. They said, you think life, you want to bring up the sacredness of life? They said, go talk to the Supreme Court. By the way, that's not who we talk to about the sacredness of life, is it? We've got somewhere else to go. But they especially didn't like the comments about women should be sacred. Suggesting that women should be sacred. The reporters said, this was the whole problem back in the 50s and 60s. And in times where women have had to fight for equality, is you put, you put women on a pedestal, you risk putting them in a box, too. Putting them down and putting them out, limiting them. Now listen, I'm certainly not in favor of any of that. The, the one reporter, Washington Post, reporter, she summed up her thoughts this way. She said, forget sacred, I'll take equal. Equality is a good thing. It's something that's very necessary for women in our culture and in this day. So we've taken some strides and we have more strides to go. But here's, here's the thing, though. We don't like that word sacred. Because sacred somehow communicates inequality. Is that true? I read another article that said this. This is why modern culture has always had a problem with the sacred. The Enlightenment introduced us to the idea that the sacred, with its aura of mystery. Remember that. We don't like mystery nowadays. The Enlightenment introduced the idea that the sacred, with its aura of mystery, should be replaced by human reason and empirical observation. In the 19th century, Karl Marx observed the effects of this Enlightenment 
with ca- uh, and wrote about capitalism's tendency to destroy the sacred. All that is sacred must be profaned, he wrote. In a world where nothing is sacred, he believed life would and should be entirely de-sanctified. True to his militant atheism, Marx did not see this as a negative development, but rather as something that would facilitate the condition of equality. So equality above all else, and therefore sacredness is bad. Sacredness must be made common, must be profaned. We need to recapture today what it means to be sacred. Because scripture says something vastly different about the meaning of the word sacred. You know what it says sacred means? It, means, it says sacred means to be set apart. Set apart to God. And this isn't limited This isn't less than, this isn't boxed up, this isn't put down. This is held in reverence, held in awe, in wonder. There's an aura of mystery about this. This is what it says in Leviticus. It talks about the sacred. God speaks to Moses and says the priests handle things that are sacred, and he tells them about it. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, those are the priests, to treat with respect the sacred offerings that the Israelites have consecrated to me so that they may not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. God says, these things are sacred. Why? He says, because they're mine. And oh, by the way, my name's associated with them. And I'm the Lord. So what? So they're his, and God's name is associated with him, and he is the Lord, so what? And he says, treat with respect. Handle with care. Our culture doesn't know how to handle with care these days. We need to recapture what God meant when he said sacred. Because our culture doesn't know what it means anymore. So we're going to go back to the beginning. It's a very good place to start, right? Back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1. I was talking with Jeff over the past week about this, and one of the things he said was that this is a, this is a guiding hermeneutic. This, when we look at Scripture, we try to find out God uh, more about God and about his intention for all of life and for our lives. We can always go back to Genesis. There is so much contained in the first couple of chapters of Genesis about God's intention for our lives and for the world but we're so familiar that we miss some of it, right? So we're going back to Genesis 1 this morning. Uh, The good news is I don't have to give you a lot of context. There's no, uh, the story so far, I don't have to go into a lot of explanation. This starts with in the beginning. There's nothing before this. The bad news is that we're all familiar with this. We've all heard this before. Even if you don't believe this stuff, you've heard this before. And we've got to hear it afresh. We've got to look at it with new eyes. Elizabeth Barrett Browning said this. She said, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. We've got to decide this morning what type of people we're going to be. Are we going to be those who see and who take off our shoes? Or are we just going to pluck blackberries this morning? Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So I don't know about you, but I hear this, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. You know what I imagine? I imagine a a match being struck, right? Or maybe at best, we imagine a flashlight being turned on, maybe even a mag light beam, that powerful beam being switched on. We forget that what God was creating on day one was a force of light. Do you know light moves 186,000 miles per second? Per second, that's fast enough to wrap the earth seven and a half times every second. It travels faster than any other force we know in the universe. Do you know how powerful light is? I I looked up about stars this week. Stars are so big, even the smallest stars, they are so big and so massive, the collective gravity of a star should just pull all of it within itself, and stars should just continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller at a very quick rate. But they don't. You know the other reason they don't? Because there's an opposite force to this gravity. An opposite force pushing back from within the star that shoves back all that gravity. You know what it is? It's light. Photons shooting out from the fusion at the center of a star. And oh, by the way, they, they aren't just strong enough to shoot out. They then travel up to 19 quadrillion miles so that we can see them. Are you in awe yet? And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And so God creates atmosphere. Our atmosphere is 300 miles thick. 16 inert gases make up our atmosphere, but most of it's made up by five or six. Our atmosphere, it fil- you know what it does? It filters out harmful UV radiation from the sun. Without w- that would be harmful to us and harmful to the rest of life. It filters that out. Oh, but it still lets solar energy pass in and light pass in. And get this, it works in cooperation with the oceans. Did you hear that? The water above and the water below work together to take that solar energy and redistribute it across the planet to keep the conditions just right and the temperature just right to sustain Earth and to sustain life. And do you know our Earth is just the right size, it's just big enough that the gravity of Earth holds that 300-mile-thick atmosphere onto the Earth and it doesn't fly off into space. Oh, but Earth is also just, just small enough that most of the gases that are dangerous to us do float off into space. Anybody in awe yet? And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit bearing, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So God creates land by shoving back the seas and setting the boundaries. But he does far more than that in this time. Do you know there are, there are cycles, what scientists call cycles, going on in this earth that are necessary to sustain life? There's the carbon cycle, the oxygen cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, the sulfur cycle, the calcium cycle, the sodium cycle, and on and on and on and on and on. Every single cycle necessary to sustain life on this planet. And let's not forget about photosynthesis, right? So God creates plants in this day. This miraculous cycle by which plants take the light energy from the sun and they transfer it to chemical energy so that they can survive. All 375,000 species of plants that are on this earth. Do you know there's 80,000 species of edible plants on this earth? I'm not saying they all taste good, but they're all there. There's 70,000 species of plants that are used in medicine today. Seems like God was thinking ahead, right? Are you in awe? And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And so God creates stars. Our last best count is that there are one septillion stars in the known universe. That's a one with 24 zeros behind it. That's in the known universe. You know why it's called the known universe? Because we haven't invented telescopes big enough to see the rest of it. There's more out there. But let's not talk about all those other stars right now. Let's talk about the one we know best, the sun. 93 million miles away, and we still can't look at it. The sun, I've been told in science classes all my life that it was just kind of average, maybe even less than average. It's not that great. The more we find out about our sun, it's very out of the ordinary. It's pretty special. The, the sun is one of the larger stars in this parts of the galaxy, actually. It's one of the few stars with just the right mass to keep a planet that's just the right size and the right distance away to sustain life. You know, our sun travels in an orbit around the galaxy and takes our solar system with it. Most stars travel in an elliptical orbit. Our sun doesn't. Our sun travels in a circular orbit which is a really good thing for us because that orbit keeps us in what astronomers call the safe zone of the galaxy. You don't want to know what happens in the unsafe zone of the galaxy. It keeps us there, but it's not just that. It's not just that the sun has the right orbit or the right mass. It also shines the right light. Stars shoot out all different types of colors of light. The sun has just the right mixture of light and the right metals inside of it that it sends out to the rest of the solar system to sustain Life. In fact, the metal content of our sun is necessary to, for, to sustain life, but it's really unusual. Most stars that are that age, they don't have nearly that, am that amount of metallic elements in them. Our sun is really unusual. What about that lesser light, the moon? 
We know it controls the tides, right? It has the pull on the tides. Do you know the moon also stabilizes the, the tilt of the Earth's axis? If we didn't have that, our seasons would be all out of whack. And our, our, the size of the moon controls the speed of the rotation of the Earth. If our moon was just a little bit bigger, our days and nights would be so long that the temperature swing would get really wide and really, really dangerous. You ready to take off your shoes yet? And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And he blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. We're going to keep going. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God made all the sea creatures. Sea creatures like the mantis shrimp. There are over 500 species of the mantis shrimp. There's some that are less than an inch long and some that are almost a foot. And some of the species of mantis shrimp, they are so powerful, get this, they are so powerful they can punch through the shell of a clam and the shell of a crab. And they can punch through the wall of an aquarium, so don't try to own one at home. The mantis shrimp, you know what else is cool about this? We have three types of cones in our eye with which we see the light that we see. A mantis shrimp has 16 different types of cones, and so they can see all sorts of light that we can't even see. And God made birds like the hummingbird. There's 300 species of hummingbirds. They all have different shaped beaks, but you know the shaped beak they have is just perfect for the types of flowers that they happen to feed off of. And hummingbirds are small, but that doesn't mean they stay in one place. There's hummingbirds that travel from Alaska to Mexico every year. Hummingbirds, when they flap their wings, they flap in a full figure-eight pattern, and they do it 60, they, no, 80 times a minute. Hummingbirds have been clocked flying at 60 miles per hour. And we all know they're beautiful, right, with that iridescent quality when the, to their coloring. That iridescent quality comes from microscopic st structures on their feathers that reflect light like a prism. And God made... All the land creatures, land creatures like a wood frog, which doesn't sound very impressive until you get to know him. A wood frog, you know what he does? He lives in, in this area and all the way up to Alaska, and you know how a wood frog survives the cold? He digs himself under the ground and freezes solid. Two-thirds of his body freezes solid, and the rest, the vital parts, are kept just unfrozen by a naturally occurring antifreeze chemicals in its bodies. God-given, not naturally occurring, right? So he can stay underground, frozen, for eight months of the year with no breath and no heartbeat. But then as soon as the thaw happens, he comes up out of the ground and gets a jump on spring, unlike all those other frogs that are stuck under the endormant, under the frozen lake. And if you're fascinated by anything that I said, you can check out the rest of the eight and a half billion species of animals 
that God put on this earth. And God saw that it was good. What was good? It, all of it. Five and a half days of his creative forces on display. His grandeur in full showmanship. Five and a half days of it. And then he takes a lunch break. Takes a lunch break. It's a holy huddle. And he speaks, not out, but in. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons that we have. It's a mystery. Are we okay with mystery this morning? It's sacred. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this conversation. Wouldn't you love to know what they're talking about? We're told what they're talking about. Guess what they're talking about? Talking about you and me. Are your ears burning? And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Five and a half days, he's been creating birds and plants and animals. And what did he create them all? How? After, according to their kinds. All of them according to their kinds. Birds according to their kinds. Animals according to their kinds. And God says, wait a minute. You thought light was powerful? Check this out. You thought that those plants were exotic? I, have, I am far more beautiful than that. You were in awe of the animals and the sea creatures and all everything I put on this earth, the birds in the air. I have more. Just wait for it. They're after their own kinds. Just wait for this one, though. This one's after me. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made in his image. What's that mean? In his image image. I'm not really going to tell you this morning. <laughs> the fact is, there's books, there's tomes of books that seek out to define what it means that we are made in the image of God. Here's the thing. We're far more concerned with figuring that out than Scripture is of telling us. Scripture doesn't take the time to define it. It's exactly like this. And there's been books that have been written that, that it's our moral capacity or capacity for creativity or our socialization skills or it's our language and cooperation together and on and on and on. And there's all sorts of those things. And I'm sure all of those are aspects of it. But frankly, Scripture just doesn't tell us. Here's what I'll say this morning. We're made in his image. You look at that word image and the rest of the time it's used in the Old Testament, that word image, almost every single other time it's used, is used to talk about an idol. An idol, a sacred image. Sacred because of the way people treated it, not because of who it was associated with. An image made of gold or stone that was a representation so that people could worship it, and God said, don't do it, and they did it anyway. Here's the thing, why'd they do it? Why'd they do that? They made a statue, they made an image so that they had something visible. To take an invisible, small g God and make it visible. The problem was, those small g gods didn't exist. 
There is a God who exists. And you know what? He made an image of himself to make his invisible self visible. And it's you, and it's me. And so, yes, there's a way that the heavens declare the glory of God. That's what Scripture tells us. There's a way that uh, from since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people were without excuse. Yes, there's a way we see all of that from creation. But there is a fullness to the way that God is visible in us that nothing else in all of creation can touch. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form, how moving, in, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. That's Shakespeare. David put it this way, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So five and a half days of creation that we can stand in awe of, and you know what the crown of it is? Us. Made in his image. I want to tell you this morning that we are valuable because we're made in his image. Scripture might not define fully what the image of God means. It does tell us what it means, though. It means that we're valuable. So Genesis chapter 9, God is talking to Noah after the ark, and we remember the rainbow. We forget he also said this. As for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. And his, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image he's mine my name is on him i'm the lord so handle with care how do we do this how do we get to know our own value well we that's what we've been doing we know god as our creator and us as his creation get to know that when we understand that the world just didn't happen to be like it is, that there is not some cosmic slot machine that happened to hit three in a row again and again and again and again and again onto infinity, however many times it would have had to do that for us to exist. When we understand that, that we're not a random lump of cells, but a creation made with intention and love by a creator who's intentional and loving that's when we start to see our value. And this makes all of us valuable. Every last one of us. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, the whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. And this gives man a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this. There are no gradations in the image of God. What does he mean? There are no degrees in the image of God. There's no scale to the image of God. We've all got it, and all got it in its fullness. 
He said, every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Do you hear that? There's no other qualifications. No additives necessary to make you valuable. We are valuable for one reason and one reason. We're made in the image of God. That means no matter what age we are, we're valuable. That means male or female, we're valuable. Doesn't matter what race we are, we're valuable. What color we are, what size we are, what shape we are, we're valuable. Regardless of the tribe we're from, the creed, culture, parentage, family size, economic class, and zip code, we're valuable. Regardless of the quality of life we have, our ability, our inability, Regardless of awards, grades, goals, certificates, titles, IQs, EQs, GPA, RBI, PhDs, SATs, we're valuable. Regardless of social skills, manners, hobbies, regardless of how many likes, hearts, friends, followers, regardless of marital status, parenting style, schooling choice, political affiliation, regardless of beliefs, religion, occupation, title, we're valuable. Every single one. Regardless of criminal background, sexual orientation, gender identity, past sin, current sin, future sin, all of us, all of sin, all of us is valuable. Do you believe that this morning? Regardless of anything else, you and me, every one of us is valuable. Do you believe that? Because our culture doesn't. Or our culture says that it does, it doesn't. Our culture looks at every single thing on this list and says, well, you're valuable depending on, depending on your age, depending on the age you are, you're more or less valuable according to our culture. Our culture will say, you're valuable if you're 58, you're valuable if you're 18, you're valuable if you're 8 years old. If you're 98, mm, depends how with it you are. You're valuable if you're eight months old, eight months prenatal, oof, less valuable. That's why since 1973 in Roe v. Wade, there's been nearly 60 million abortions. Because our culture doesn't think it's valuable. Scripture has a very different view of this. David says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You know the word that the Bible uses for child, for a child in the womb? You know what word it is? It's the same word that it uses for child outside the womb. Because it's a person. And it matters. I love this. God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I made you sacred before you were born handle with care. I need to say what we always say when we cover this topic here. If any women in this room have had an abortion, I want to say to you there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ, so shame off you. Shame off you. There is forgiveness and grace to be found through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So there is no judgment here. There is love. You are welcome here. And we all stand equally broken and in need of our Savior. 
forgiveness in Jesus for you. Let's take uh, quality of life. That's a very nebulous term. According to our culture, your value changes depending on the quality of your life. So there was an article in 2011, and the title of the article in New York Post said this, The End of Down Syndrome. That sounds good. Uh, What the article was about was a new safer test for prenatal detection of Down syndrome. Before this test was in place, when they determined, when there was a prenatal detection of this child has Down syndrome, 92% of the time, the mother would decide to terminate the pregnancy. 92%. Now that this test was safer and more accurate, all the experts were saying it's the end of Down syndrome. But you see what's going on here, right? End of Down syndrome, it sounds like they found a treatment. It sounds like they found a cure for the condition. This isn't a treatment or a cure. This is annihilation. Do you know those folks, those kids who are born with Down syndrome, when they survey them, 99% of them 99% of them say that they're generally happy with their lives. Do you know people who have Down syndrome? 97% of those surveyed say that, yes, they like themselves. I think that's far better results than we would get if we surveyed this room right now, right? There's somebody who cares about the quality of life far more than you or I do. It's Jesus Christ. And he said, the thief came to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Sounds like maybe instead of exterminating those with Down syndrome, we should learn for them. Seems like God taught them something about living life to the full. I read an article in Christianity Today a few months ago that talked about the new place, the significant place that people with Down syndrome and intellectual disabilities we're having in the church these days, not to be ministered to, but to minister to others because of the unique giftings that God gave them. We don't get to decide the value of a life. He does. It's his, and his name's attached. So handle with care. Listen, we're not just valuable because we're in his image. We're valuable because we're known and loved. Let me ask you this, that list of things that I went through, age and race and color and size and gender and uh, awards and accomplishments, do you believe that's true about you? Sometimes it's easier to say about somebody else, but do you believe that's true about you? Here's the thing, in a couple of chapters after this in Genesis, uh, let me go back here, Uh, we are valuable because we're known and we're loved. You know what God does right after he creates man? In his image, he blesses them, and he provides for them. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. He gives them a job so that they might feel fulfilled. And he said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. He gave them all of that. He provides for them. Why? Because they're known and they're loved. But in a couple of chapters, all of the trees on the face of the earth and 375,000 species of plants aren't going to be enough 
And man and woman got to go to that one tree with the one fruit that God said, hands off that one, trust me instead. And they're going to say no, and they're going to grab it. You know, the first thing that happens, they realize they're naked, and they need to cover up. That's where shame comes in. And you and me and everybody else have been struggling with shame ever since. You know the voice of shame. It's that voice in your head that says you're naked, that you're not enough, that somebody's going to find you out, that you're smaller than you should be, that you're less able than you should be. And so when we hear that voice of shame, we look outside ourselves to tell ourselves we're going to be okay. We look outside ourselves for some measuring stick that we're going to, that's going to tell us that we're okay. And we look to our grades, or we look to our followers, or we look to our money, or we look to our titles. We look to something. And let me tell you, all of that is going to fail us. If we look for our worth any other place but the God who made us, it will crush so there was a recession in 2008, economic recession. We all remember that. I read about a man in London who was a multi-billionaire. He lost half his net worth. Half his net worth in the recession. That's huge. But after all was said and done, listen, he was still a multi-billionaire. He didn't have to change his lifestyle at all. And he took his own life. because it wasn't enough, because at some point he had looked to his money for his identity and his worth, and when he didn't measure up, he turned to self-hatred, and then hopelessness, and then ultimately self-destruction. Listen, this seems really far away, doesn't it? But it's not. In a room this size, there are those of us in this room who have had similar struggles. We see something about our lives that doesn't measure up. And we don't like ourselves. Eventually, maybe we hate ourselves. And we're in a place of hopelessness. And eventually, it might lead us to self-destruction. There might be those in this room who've contemplated that. And listen, even if there are those of us in this room who aren't, <laughs> we would never hurt ourselves physically, cut ourselves physically, or take our own life physically, and yet on the inside there are those of us who take a knife every single day to our self-worth, our self-esteem. We've been killing ourselves emotionally for years. Listen, if you're in this place today, even a little bit, in any way, I need you to tell you something. The voice of shame is a lie. You matter. You matter to the God who made you. You are worthy of his love because he loves you. And that's it. Nothing added. You need to hear this. You're precious because he made you. In Christ, you are the apple of his eye. God is crazy about you. He rejoices over you with singing. Listen, he loved you so much 
He loved you so much that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He loved you so much that he sent his only son for you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you. So if you're in that place at all, you need to hear the voice of the shame is a lie. You also need to hear this. You're not alone. First of all, you're not alone because God knows you. You know who Christ was? Scripture tells us he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief, and that he was tempted in every way as we are. He knows you. And I also need to tell you, you're not alone. Like, sometimes we need to hear God's truth, and we hear that through his word and his spirit and his people, right? But, but sometimes it's in a different order. So if you're in that place at all and you need God's truth, come to his people. Reach out and get help here. Let me just pray for a minute. Lord Jesus, I just lift up to you every heart and mind in this room every life in this room that matters to you. And God, we hold before you every worthless thought we've ever had. Every thought that's told us we didn't measure up. Every agreement we made with the lie that we needed something else. We needed to do something to be loved. We hold all of those agreements and all of those lies and all of those thoughts up to you. And we ask you to renew our minds this morning and renew our hearts with an understanding of the value that you place on us. That you made us sacred. Teach us how to handle ourselves with care. In your name, amen. So we're valuable because we're made in his image. We're valuable because we're known and loved. Listen, lastly, we're valuable because we're his. And there's a way that we could say that if you are in Jesus Christ. There's a way we can say that we are his. That's actually not what I mean this morning. God said this, let us make man in our image and in his likeness and let them have dominion. Because we were created in the image of God, however we define that, one of the results is he gives us dominion. He gives us charge. You know why we have charge? Because he's in charge. You know why we have authority? Any authority at all? Because he has authority first. That's what I mean when I say we're his. If you are in Jesus Christ, you're doubly his. Because you know what scripture tells us? You are bought with a price. You are not your own. So it turns out there is a higher authority than our own will. Right? That's the argument for abortion nowadays. What right do we have to tell a woman what she has to do with her own body? Well, I don't have a right, but I know who does. The God who made her. He has authority to tell me what I do with my own body, too. Because I'm his, whether I know it or not. I'm his. All of us precious, every single one. And so God says, handle with care. God says, don't murder, right? And then Jesus comes along and tells us, you know, there's other ways to murder. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. And whoever kills will be in danger of judgment. And then Jesus says, but I tell you the truth. Whoever is angry with his brother is in danger of judgment. Whoever says to him, you fool, is in danger of the council. And this is how seriously Jesus takes this. Whoever says raka to his brother, 
That's a term of disdain. I don't know why they didn't translate that word into English, but I'm, gonna, I'm guessing maybe it's because we don't have a strong enough word in our language for how much disdain that communicates. Whoever says raka to his brother is in danger of the fires of hell. That's how seriously God takes this stuff. And so, lost my place here. Hang on, I'm getting there. <laughs> so God, Jesus says there's other ways to kill each other by calling us fools and getting angry. And how often does that happen in our culture and we don't even notice it? So I've stepped on a few toes this morning, probably what's a few more, right? There's, there's stuff we see that are in our culture that we just take in, right? And we hear it, and so this last week there was an election, so, whoo, bring up politics, get ready. And this came in my mailbox. Um, it's paid for by the Republican Federal Committee of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm not going to go into politics much, but, you know, if, if you want to know my politics, I lean to the right, so this is kind of some people I identify with, and after I read this, I, I was actually sorry that I identified with them. I was disappointed they had to communicate this. It says, the left has become an unhinged mob committed to reverse American progress. And on it is, is a picture of angry guys that are dressed, there's a guy who has a helmet on and goggles and one's carrying a baseball bat. They are ready to destroy something. Now listen, I, in a room this big, there's, there's some of you that are on the left. There's some liberals. Let me see if I can find you. No, maybe not. See, I, we've gotten so used to this diatribes in our culture, we just let it be. It comes in our mailbox and we just toss it out and we don't even realize what we read. And Jesus said, don't call your brother a fool and do not say raka. And how many times do we do that to each other? Tim Kreider is a writer for the New York Times, and he called this thing outrage porn. He says this, so many letters to the editor and comments on the internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by, and they've found it. Obviously, some part of us loves feeling right and wronged. But outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time de devour us from the inside out. Except it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable but fundamentally healthy reaction to negative stimuli, like pain or nausea, rather than admit that it's a shameful kick we eagerly indulge in again and again. It's outrage porn, selected to specifically pander to our impulse to judge and punish to get us off on righteous indignation. Since when did somebody we disagree with become an enemy? And you know what Jesus told us to do to our enemies? He told us to love them. Listen, hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we sacrifice truth. I am not saying that there is not truth. I am not saying that there is not right or wrong that we stand up for if people express a different opinion. I'm saying when you hold to the truth, hold it in love. Speak it 
in love. Can we do that? We just went through a worship series. You remember the postures? You want to stand up and do them all? I'm not going to make you. I'm just going to have you do one, this one. Everybody do this. Remember this? This was Yada. We praise our God. And the way Jeff talked about this, one of the things he said, keep them up, keep them up, just for a minute longer. You can do that. It's a sign of surrender. We lay down all opposition to our God. All opposition. Do you think part of our worship might also be laying down all opposition towards each other? All opposition. And put them down. What would happen if as we worshiped, we would lay down not the truth, but all opposition to each other? I love Paul, don't you? You love Paul's letters? Paul's letters, you read his letters, and there's something he says at the beginning of every single letter. Every single letter he starts it with grace and peace. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. He says to everybody that he writes to, and he's writing letters of encouragement, and he starts them out, grace and peace. And he's writing letters of thanks, and he's starting out, grace and peace. And he's writing letters to light into people because they're committing sin, and they're not admitting it, and he's convicting them. And he's saying, this isn't right. And you know how he starts? Grace and peace. The rest of the series, and today, we've gone through a lot of hot-button issues, right? That our blood pressure gets up. Are we able to enter into these conversations with grace and peace? Are we able to have the conversations with grace and with peace? And are we able to end the conversations with grace and peace? What would happen if we did? What would happen if we were a people who were known with the utmost compassion for everyone, even those we disagreed with? Even those who are getting it wrong out there, what if they knew us by our love? Then, maybe then, we would be the image of an invisible God and we would make him visible. I'm going to invite the prayer team up and the worship team out as we close. You know, I don't know how all this is hitting you right now but our worship as we've worshiped today looking at the word our worship continues it's a passionate response to the reality of who God is and who we are in him so I want to give you the opportunity this morning to respond in whatever way God is calling you to respond to the reality and the value that you have in him so if you are here today and maybe you've been believing that voice of shame for far too long and you need to hear his truth I would invite you forward for prayer today so that myself and other brothers and sisters might be truth over you if you're here today and you've been lighting in to those who disagree with you and maybe you need to see them as valuable for no other reason nothing else needed because God loves them and made them Maybe you need to ask forgiveness for that. Come forward. We'll pray with you and stand with you, ground level, foot of the cross, and ask forgiveness. And maybe it's not you, but maybe there's somebody in your life who is devaluing themselves or others right now. I'd invite you during this time to pray for them. Pray for them in your seat. You're allowed to get up and gather together in groups to pray 
for just a moment? That we might respond to the reality of our value of our God. I would invite you to this time. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we submit our hearts before you and we ask your word to continue to do whatever work is needed in our lives. We thank you that you love us just as we are. And I thank you, God, that you love us too much to leave us that way. And in response to your great love and value of us, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cleanse us today in whatever ways we need cleansing. Let us reach out to our brothers and sisters for help that's needed so we might hear your truth from their lips. And God, let us walk from this place today more aware than ever of the value we have in you. And I'll release you to these moments of prayer for just a moment or two, and then we'll worship together.
God changes the atmosphere. I want you to know this morning, if you are in Jesus Christ, you know his spirit lives in you. That means that his spirit can work through you to change the atmosphere today, this week, in the lives of your family, in the lives of your friends, in the lives of those you called enemies, in a world that doesn't understand. Maybe we be empowered today with full awareness of our value to God. And we, may we go out and speak that love to others. Amen. Amen. Amen.